Good evening. It is 7pm and you are listening to the Ecology Hour on KZYX, Mendocino County's Public and Community Radio. KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. And on this evening's Ecology Hour, I will be your host, Hannah Bird. Now, KZYX is currently in our fall quiet drive. You can help us reach our goal by making a donation to P.O. Box 1 Philo, CA 95466, or go online to kzyx.org, where you can also view our thank you gifts. During business hours, you can call the office at 707 895 2324 and press 5. Become a member today and support local community radio. Thank you. Welcome to this evening's edition of the Ecology Hour. We've got some wonderful interviews to share with you, focusing on fire education and resilience. We'll be starting the show with an interview with Mio Marufo, EPA Director, the Giddyville Band of Pomo Indians, considering the complex relationships between humans and fire and how we can educate our young people about this incredible tool. We'll then move to spend some time with Lindsay Daly, Programme Manager at the Oak Granary in Potter Valley, to hear how you can support oak regeneration efforts in areas of Redwood Valley burned in the 2017 wildfires by collecting acorns for planting. Both of tonight's interviews are also shared on the UC Hopland Research and Extension Centre YouTube channel. You can find them by searching for Hopland Rec, that's Hopland R-E-C, on YouTube. So let's get started with a conversation about our human relationship with fire. This interview took place between myself my colleague Alexandra Stefancic, community educator at UCANR, and Mio Marufo, who is Eastern Pomo of the Robinson Rancheria Band of Pomo Indians. She's also EPA Director of the Giddyville Band of Pomo Indians, Regional Tribal Operations Committee Region 9 Central California Representative, National Tribal Caucus EPA California State Representative, we had the conversation on September the 11th. The interview also supports our efforts to create Oak Woodlands Fire Education for middle school students as part of an EPA-funded programme to develop these lessons for the US Forest Service Fireworks Curriculum. We started by asking Mio to help us understand what the term pyroagriculture means. So pyro agriculture, and um, as I always say when I talk, this is my truth. This isn't anybody else's truth. These are things that I've learned. This is not textbook learned or anything like that. Um, this is, you know, there are people with other opinions. So this is mine. 
not that. Uh, Pyroagriculture to me is the use of fire to promote agriculture health. Um, when we last talked about it, um, we were talking about the, the acorn trees, we were talking about um, the mushrooms uh, gathering areas, we were talking about some of the some of the staple foods of Pomo country. And when I say pyroagriculture, it is the specific use of fire in those areas to promote the health of what we are gathering. So pyroagriculture, I'm assuming um, a lot of the fire setting was intentional. Um, so I'm just kind of curious um, if you can explain some of the techniques that you used for um, lighting fires, um, choosing where to burn, or how you kind of controlled fire size, because I know you spoke to that a little bit as well. So the fires in the oak woodlands and the fires, all fire management is very different. Um, the first thing is, is knowing where you are. Um, so fire management in Miwok country is going to be very different from fire management in Hoopa, which is going to be very different with fire management in Pomo country. In Pomo country, we have across our, our entire region, we have lake, valley, and coast. Coast is mostly forest, so their fire management is different. Lake County, um, the fire management would be in the oak woodlands, but it'd also be down on the lake shore. Mm -hmm. um, here in the valley, the fire management is in the oak woodlands also. So we're gonna talk about kind of the oak woodlands area which yeah, is grass, grasslands, partially scrub oaks. So when you're looking at fire management, when you're looking at setting a fire, the first thing you're going to be looking at is what is the fuel load of where you're setting the fires. So if we looked at where the gullies are, natural stream beds, where the chaparral line is, um, when you hit up to, and when you go up into the chaparral, there's actually kind of a natural three or four foot buffer um, that is created by the chaparral. Once you get up there, you can see that it starts to become more dirt with plants. It's less grassy. And so there's kind of a natural line before you hit those hardwoods of manzanita. Um, and there's a, there's a, there's more grasses available. So you're going to be looking at kind of the area. Are there natural buffers? Do you have enough people to um, possibly put out a fire if you need to? Because you're not going to just like set it and just go, wee, you know, let it burn. <laughs> you know, you're going to set it and you're going to want to set it with parameters. You're going to have to find a way to put it out if it, if it goes beyond the borders. Are you going to be able to control this fire? If you're going to be starting a large grassland fire, you're going to definitely look at the fuel loads on the lower edge of all the oaks. Um, you're going to see because what you want is a low temperature, fast moving fire. You don't want a high temperature, slow moving because then it harms the oaks that you're actually trying to clean under. 
-hmm. So you're going to look at natural, you're going to look at the topography of where you are. You're going to look for stream beds because those usually don't have plants in the middle. And so it creates like this natural barrier. You're going to have gullies. The gullies go down. And so you're able to control the fire because it V's and you can put it out at the bottom. So you're going to look at the topography of where you are. Yeah. And I mean, it really does sound, it's basically the same as people who are considering doing prescribed burning today, you know, thinking about all those same things. And I think, um, you know, as we had talked before, you were like, all these people have this funny conception that like, when we were using fire that we were just running around lighting things like mad, um, you know, without thinking about it and planning it out. But yeah, as you talk to us about it, it's definitely like a, a thorough thought out process with a, a deep understanding of the land and how to work with the, each different individual place. It's, it is very different because what you're looking at, what people are thinking is, the general conception, you're right, is that we ran around lighting fires. But you have to look at what fire management is for. Fire management is for the health of your food. We are not going to destroy our food source. It's not like we could have ran to Safeways, you know, oh, darn, we burned up all of our acorns. Where are we going to go? Let's run to Safeways, go grab some more. You know, you're not doing that. You're, you're, maintaining the health of the tree so that you can actually gather more from the tree because the acorn is your staple food. It's not a condiment. It's not ketchup. You know, it's the staple of what you're eating. And the majority of, you know, you're collecting thousand pounds at a time. So you're not going to just say, oh, darn, the whole grove caught on fire. So my bad, you know, because you're going to wipe out your tribe's food source. So no, it, it is very thought out. And I think the misconception out there is that, you know, that it, that it wasn't thought out, that there's a difference between prescribed burns and traditional fire management. And there's not. Could I just ask as well, Mia, as you have just described, it sounds to me like you have very direct experience yourself of being involved in these burns. Um, is, am I right in saying that? Um, on a smaller sense, on a smaller sense, because a lot of, you know, on a smaller sense for just a tiny area, but I am also, because I'm California state representative and environmental, I talk to a lot of other tribal environmental programs and they are moving back to traditional fire management and the problem that they are facing is that there in order to if we want to go go talk about this is that okay so in order to go back to fire management you have to take out all of the fuel load because otherwise what you're doing is you're creating a hotter slower fire and mm -hmm. a hotter slow, slower fire is what we're all experiencing right now instead of just sweeping through the grass we're having, you know, there's, there's all the underbrush that has built up over the years. There's all of the deadwood, the widow maker limbs and everything that are dead limbs on the trees. There's all of those things that are there now. 
So the environmental departments, when we are, when we are going through and saying, okay, what we want to do is give back to traditional ecological knowledge and we want to start using firescaping and we want to start using, you know, our fire management protocols. And we're looking at them and we're going out and we're looking at, say the Washos are doing a marsh. Um, and I got to tour it and I forgot the name of the marsh exactly, but it, it's, uh, it's in uh, Tahoe City. And they have this beautiful marsh, but they have to take out probably about 10 truckloads of stuff, if not more, just to get it to a point where they can actually set a fire without burning down the whole forest, you know, mm -hmm. because, because of that, that fuel load that's there. Um, and when I talk about a fast moving fire and a slow moving fire, so what we're doing right now is we have a, we have slow moving fires. Yes, there's, they're spreading really fast right now. When you look at the Willits area, when you look at the Covalo area, Glen County and everything, they're spreading faster is because they're hotter fires. Um, fast moving low temperature is grass. So basically you're gonna get a nice, a nice sweeping fire that goes through, clears all the understory out and it doesn't light the trees on fire because it's moving so fast and it's not hot enough. And it creates this wonderful smoke for the trees, um, which, you know, kind of like an antiseptic on the trees because that that smoke is good for it when you don't have when you have a higher fuel loads what it does is it slows the fire down because it's catching the twigs then it's catching the branches then it's catching the trees so it's no longer this fast moving low temperature fire it is slowed down and it's becoming a higher temperature once you get to that higher temperature then you're going to go up into the chaparral where you hit hardwoods. Mm -hmm. So no longer is it oak and pine, kind of softer woods. It's hitting the hardwoods like manzanitas, madrones, things like that. Um, and it's becoming even hotter. So it goes up like it did at, um, well, it did at the Hoplin Research Center. And it did at Pepperwood Preserves. It went up like in the back of my house where I was evacuated from. Um, it goes up hits that hardwoods, comes back down and burns the root substructure of everything. And so it ends up just wiping the whole area out. So it's no longer, no longer gatherable. You know, you can't gather in it. You can't get anything to eat off of it. You have to wait for it to return. And so in thinking about, you know, we've had this buildup of fuels that's taken so much time. And obviously there's a lot that we'll have to do to get back um, to where we can use fire um, without negative consequences. But I'm just curious how often, um, I know it'd be variable depending on the individual site and what you were using it for, but how often were many places burned? Um, was it annually, every few years? I know there's probably, you know, each different location had a different burn frequency depending on how you used it. So there's no real general answer to that. Yeah. Other than to say two to four years. Yeah. Because when you burn, it takes a year to bring it back to health. And then it takes another year for it to grow high enough to be a problem again. Mm -hmm. 
So when you see, and we're not talking about the wiped out areas along Cash Creek, because that's like a 10 year recovery. We're talking about just a quick grass fire. So the grass is burned down and then they go through. So we're assuming that happens in summer. Mm -hmm. Grass is burned down. Water comes in the winter. Smaller, smaller native grasses are growing. Um, the different, the different ones, you know, tarweed, brome grass, in the different layers of prairie grass, it's coming back. And then it grows, grows, and you gather. And then about the next year, you start looking at, okay, it's kind of getting long now. It's kind of getting tall. You know, what do we need to do this? It's not an every year thing. Nobody wants to fight fire every year. You know, but you want to take the understory out when it starts getting dangerous, when it starts getting, okay, this is too long. I'm, I can't see the acorns anymore. It's created a bedding underneath to where I'm having to dig for these things now under the leaves, under the grasses and stuff. Time to burn. And that can take anywhere from two to four years. Yeah. Yeah. And that two to four years is such a big difference than, you know, the 50 plus years yeah that we're experiencing now um i'm curious just kind of on a a personal level um you know our state right now that we've burned over two million acres so far this year i'm just curious i i i have this feeling like I get frustrated about this because I feel like this is a solvable problem. Like if we took care of our, our environment that we could fix this, um, you know, we could be more resilient to the changes that are going to come from climate change. So I'm just kind of curious, you know, in thinking about the fire problems the state's experiencing, like just, just what, um, you know, what are your thoughts on it? Um, are you, are you feeling, you know, is it kind of like good pressure to like get, get back to traditional land management or? I, I, first of all, what I want to tell you is that we have gone through catastrophic fires before. Our redwoods, our oak trees, any of the major trees that are, that are older, when you cut them, you can see where there's been fires that happened. So, you know, the, the Redwoods lived through major fires before because of, and that's what that, that, that beautiful bark um, that you see on the outside of the trees, that's what that's for, um, so that they can live through, through those fires. Oak trees have lived through fires also. Um, so when you're thinking about what's happening right now, you know, major fires happen. They do. It, you know, sometimes you need to just go through and cleanse. The problem that we're having right now is the structures that are, that are going down. Because we have more people, those major fires are impacting. You know, when, when it gets to um, like the Mendocino National Forest, that's secondary to put out. The first part they were gonna put out is the houses is all of the structures around it. You know, and it's actually those structures that are making it a hotter fire 
because not because the structures are burning down, but because of all the crap around it and all of the different plants around it and all of the oils and everything else around it. You know, so do we want to move back to traditional ecological management? I think that's all of our goals. You know, I think that that's the only way that we're going to be able to manage what we have. But we also need to take into account that these types of things do happen and they have happened over the years. So rather than a lot, there's a lot of people going, you know, if we had fire management, it wouldn't be as bad. Well, if we didn't have 8 billion people in the world, it wouldn't be as bad either. You know, if we didn't have, if we didn't have power lines running through forests, it wouldn't be as bad either. But we're having to deal with what's happening now. And that's kind of the hard part where I see a lot of people. Would traditional fire management help this? Yes. Would it stop it? Not necessarily. And there would be a point where, you know, in the forest, if it was a good fire, yeah, but they've been burned out before. And so have we in Lake County and so have we here. You know, we've, we've been burned out before because our trees have shown us that. You know, our heartwoods show us that there it has been burns in the past couple of hundred years. You know, so fire management would lessen the impact. I think it would be smarter for the people that have the structures around, you know, that 100-foot barrier, you know, 50-foot, 100-foot, if people followed that, um, in areas where there is traditional gathering, fire management would help that because it'd be less of an impact when the fire does go through because it would burn faster and burn through it so that it wouldn't be so much um, damage to the trees themselves. Yes, would it stop at all? No. Because yeah. I, don't want, I don't want people to get the idea that we are going to take, we as Native people are going to take responsibility for the fires that happen. And because when they say, well, we were using those California Indians fire management techniques, <laughs> how come it didn't work? You know, because catastrophes happen. Yeah. You know, this is just a way to get through it a little less, a little more unscathed. How's that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's, it's such an interesting um, conundrum. I know that right now in California, only about um, 20,000 acres every year are burned um, using prescribed burning. Um, and obviously, there's a lot of people who are, who are trying to think about how to scale up, how to scale up our um land management you know how to get more folks involved and um there's a lot of barriers uh you know in the different environmental you know you have to get a, a sequa you have to get uh an okay from your cal fire person all these things have to be perfect um and then when you think about um the firefighting you know they don't really have to like fill out a form before they drop 
you know, thousands of gallons of retardant on an area. So it's just interesting to think about like what, what processes we should be supporting or making easier um, and what kind of things, you know, are a little bit possibly too easy to do. I think the um, biggest thing right now is to teach people the different types of fires because I think what is going on is that people are equating fire management with arson. They're, they're looking at it as we're going out and creating these fires and oh, those Indians love fires and they like dance around them, they do this and that around them. And, and it's not the same thing. You know, that's one of the problems that we're having in for the privatized land ownership is that when we want to go out and and do burning on certain plants, they're thinking we're trying to destroy them. And it's not destroying them. It's actually making them healthier because it's giving them room to grow and you're actually going to get a healthier plant. And that's the part that needs to be taught more mm -hmm. you know this is not this is not random fire fire setting this is not you know walking around with one of those fire dragons the the little torch things and just running through you know i i feel like what i often think people are thinking is that we're like the the movie the crudes when they first discover fire and they're like oh look at the little fire oh, run with it run with it and then everything goes up in a blaze that's that's not what's happening you know first of all you know it's the adults that are involved it's not the children that are involved it's thought out it's decided on where it's going to be it's you know is it going to have an impact on the health of our food sources is it going to have an impact? Is it near our villages? Is, it, is there a possibility of our villages being set on fire? Because that, you know what, our, our, our houses are tule and our houses are bark. You know, we're not going to randomly set fires that are going to burn our villages down. You know, that's, and I think that's what people think. You know, it, it kind of, you know, when, whenever you bring fire management up or whenever you talk fire management, people are just like, you know, they kind of roll their eyes and they think, you know, well, we do prescribe burning. Well, this isn't just prescribed burning. This is a larger scale of pre prescribed burning. And this is also adding in the inherent knowledge of what plant life is there and the use of yeah. it. And that's very different from prescribed burning. Prescribed burning is going out there and taking a fuel load down. This is taking a fuel load down and also maintaining the health of the native plants that are there. Yeah. And I think what people miss. Mm -hmm. Can you give an example? I know you spoke a lot about several plants when we were on the tour um, of the Hopland Wreck. I was wondering if you could give an example of one or two plants um that specifically need fire uh and how fire impacts them well i personally think that our oak trees need fire yeah that's my own personal opinion though 
because I think that's one of the reasons why the sudden of pathogen is so rapid right now, sudden of death is so rapid, is because we don't have fire management. I think that that the smoke from the, the grass fires uh, create, God, I, I just, I don't know. I think it, it creates like a Band-Aid onto our oaks. It creates mm -hmm. an antiseptic wash. It's like that after you use makeup remover and just kind of take it all off. And, you know, I think that's what fire does to, to our, um, to our oaks. You know, you look at the way, think about it like this. Um, and then we'll get into the mushrooms. But think about it like this. When you smudge, if, you, if you've ever seen anybody smudge themselves, what are they doing? They're bathing themselves in the smoke mm -hmm. because they're drawing that, that smoke onto them. And that's to me what the grass fires do for the oaks. It smudges them down, but there's also reasonings for those smudges. There's also, you know, antimicrobials and antibacterials that go into those also, you know, that mm -hmm. we're finding out. Um, it, it's, you know, it's, to me, it's a good thing. Um, the other thing we we're talking about was the mushrooms that were up there when we were walking around, we were seeing areas that were really clear and nice and clear and, and there showed uh, fire damage on the madrones and fire damage on the trees there. And it was like, well, why? Well, guess what? You know what? Mushrooms love nitrogen. Mushrooms love this and that. And those, you know, the fire going in actually helps all those mushroom areas. When you look at, you know, and yeah, it becomes a natural place to gather because guess what? You light it up and you got all these empty spaces and all those, it, that was actually a really nice walk. Um, Folks, if you have a chance. <laughs> um, but the other plants that it helps are the prairie grasses because some of those seeds need, um, they need different things to happen before they actually go into bloom or they actually mm -hmm. um, germinate. But um, when you have the grass fires go through, so you take down all of the understory, all the seeds are scattered. So you have two good years of really, you have your tarweed come up, you have your brome grass come up, and they actually come up in their layers. Um, and you see, you, you get to learn when they are ready. You get to learn their growing paths. And that's important too, because that impacts the people the most. Those are the, that's the best thing you can do is watch how a plant grows and watch how it how it comes to seed and know when it's ready. And you you can really only see that after you've taken down your understory as much. Because otherwise you see it just a bunch of grass and then you see a tarweed come up and then you see you can see the different layers if you know what you're looking for. Mm -hmm. And if you don't, this is a good way to start learning how to do it because you watch it go from the bottom up. The time is 7.30pm and you are listening to The Ecology Hour on KZYX, Mendocino County's Public and Community Radio. Now, 
Let's return to our conversation with Mio Marufo, EPA Director at the Giddyville Band of Pomo Indians, to consider the complex relationships that humans have with fire. So, um, Mio, I, I am interested. So one of the things you've been so wonderful in helping us with is guiding us as we develop curriculum for middle schoolers um, around fire science and that's looking at both the ecology of fire, the um, physics of it, and then how we can be more fire prepared. So as you've been talking today, you know, we've touched on a few times about these different kind of relationships that different people have with fire. And when we go into a middle school classroom, um, we normally start by asking them to just write a few words down of how they're feeling about fire. And you get a real mixed bag of everything from s'mores and you know happy gatherings they've had, and to um, evacuating, being afraid. Um, and I was just wondering what your feelings are about as we have to change the relationship with fire so that we can accept all these different roles it plays. How can we work with our young people? through that process? I, I want to say the first thing is, is that they need to learn how to respect fire. Um, there's, a, there's a heck of a lot of kids in this world that have never camped. They've never seen fire outdoors. They've never seen fire outside of their stove. You know, they've never seen fire outside of a fireplace. And I think not, oh, take them out in the woods and set a fire. <laughs> not quite, but I think, I think what kids see now is controlled fire or un totally uncontrolled fire. There's no kind of happy medium. They've never seen a natural fire. They've never seen, you know, a good fire outside that, you know, a bonfire. You know, there's, there's this, you either, you're either scared of it or you're right. Like it, it evokes s'mores, it evokes happier times, but not having that in between creates arsonists because they don't understand it or they think they understand it because they have a skewed sense of what fire is. And I think showing, showing kids that, that, oh, fire is your friend, no, but showing them that adults think things out and adults try and manage land with fire. And this is how, you know, that instead of just, instead of just having a fire impact their lives one particular way, show them a broader sense of what fire can do, you know, because yeah, there's a lot of, my son is one of them, you know, evacuated out of our house for nine days and watched the fire come near our house. We had to, we had to go back and basically talk to him about not being scared of it, you know, and to reteach that, and it took, hey, you know what? We're gonna go, we're gonna go start a fire. Come on, let's go start a fire that we can control, but you understand that I understand what it is. You know, and 
make friends with it. I, it's a kind of a silly thing, but you know, because I, I don't want you, I don't want to tell young people, oh, go out and set a fire, because that's not it, you know. But but I think it's it's not it's not teaching the children about fire as much as it's teaching the adults around them to integrate their children in this learning process. Yeah. I think one of the things we've um, learned as we've gone through this process, because some of the lessons do include students working with models of fire, using fire, and um, often folks are alarmed at that. But um, one of the things that Ali's discovered in her research is there are studies to prove that um, the more young people learn about what a fire needs, <laughs> then the less likely they actually are to go out and become an arsonist or to use it in a way yeah. that's dangerous. Yeah, I, I, I firmly believe that. You know, you get a healthy respect of something, then you tend not to want to abuse it. You know, it's the same thing with firearms. You know, there's a difference between, you know, some of the, some of the more rural areas that have guns hanging above their doors still you know, because they're using it for hunting and they're not going out and playing, you know, video games that show everything, you know, killing and this and that, but they're actually eating what they kill, you know, it becomes more of, oh, this is a tool. And that's what fire is. Fire is a tool. You know, it's, 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 we need a healthy respect of it, but it's a tool that that creator gave us to manage. You know, and every once in a while, Creator will teach us a lesson like we do now. But, you know, in the end, it's a tool for us to manage. And the, the sooner we start figuring out or relearning or revitalizing our past knowledge, the, the healthier we're going to be because when catastrophic things like this happen, we won't be as scared. Well, Alan, yeah. do you have anything else to add? No, I don't. Thank you so much, Miao, for taking the time to chat with us today. Um, it's truly helpful, um, both uh, for Hannah and I, as we create this curriculum to then share with folks, um, and also for the teachers who are able to watch it and learn more so that they can feel empowered um, as they teach their students about fire, too. Yeah. Well, I hope I, I hope I answered some questions. I hope I hope that whoever watches this learns a little bit more, understanding that this is one person's opinion, and each of the regions of Indian country have very different views because very, we have very different environments. So I'm talking specifically about the oak shrublands and grasslands. I don't speak for the forest people and I don't speak for the desert people or the ocean people, you know, so um, what I speak to is where I work and where I live, you know, so, so I would encourage anybody who is outside of this area to seek the knowledge of what the people there are doing with fire. Yeah, and I mean, that's the wonderful thing about California, right? We have such a diversity of ecosystems. So um, I'm sure that 
land practices everywhere around the state were wildly different given the different parameters of, yeah. of each area. Thank you so much to Mia Marufo for sharing her knowledge and experience with us. If you are an educator who would be interested in learning more about the fire education curriculum we have been working on, please contact me at hbird at ucanr.edu. That's hbird at ucanr.edu. We'd love to share our lessons and resource boxes with you and your students. Now let's move on to an interview with Lindsay Daly to hear how you can support oak regeneration in fire-affected areas. Lindsay is the Programme Director and co-founder of The Oak Granary, a small non-profit based in Potter Valley. This recording is from a recent webinar that Lindsay offered to guide people through the acorn collection process for planting in burned areas of Redwood Valley. Lindsay starts by describing how the project came about. We have been involved for the last um, couple years in a collaboration between the Oak Granary, the Hopland Research and Extension Center and the Mendocino County Resource Conservation District um and kind of looking at how you know we can help the land recover from the redwood complex which now just feels like ages ago many fires ago um, but plenty of lessons to be learned um, from this work that um, are relevant um, more and more all the time so this project um, is called the road to recovery and it involved um it, it's ongoing and we've been doing um, various kinds of work, um, riparian restoration, um, rebuilding of roads um, to um, fish friendly standards. And then the piece that we've been working on specifically is around um, planting acorns and helping the oak woodlands recover. So, um, so the first question, here's a, here's a little overview of what we're gonna cover today. Um, real briefly, we'll talk about why oaks and some tips on gathering and sorting acorns and then we'll talk about our acorn bank and the drop-off sites and so before we get um, too deeply into that I just want to start off by um, thanking um, both some of my teachers as well as the long-term stewards of this land and by yeah thanking the the First Nations and Native Californians that have been in relationship with and stewarded oak woodlands for many millennia and it's thanks to their very sophisticated land management that we we have um, the oak woodlands that we have today, which require human interaction to be at their best. And it's not a topic we'll talk about a ton today, but um, if anyone's interested in learning more about um, acorns, I highly recommend Julia Parker's book, It Will Live Forever. Um, I had a chance to sit with and learn from, from Julia, who's a, um, a renowned basket weaver and um, this amazing resource on um, acorns as food from native Californian perspective. Another uh, answer to the question of why oaks, you know, one is just their universality as a really important plant um, culturally 
throughout the world. And yeah, California oak woodlands are the most important terrestrial ecosystem in California for biodiversity. And, um, you know, as a student of, um, of the land and someone who's been asking the question for a long time of, of how to be in better relationship with land and with place, um, I, I've come back to time and again that planting an acorn is, is one of the things that you can do if you care about life and you want to see, you know, all these beautiful creatures thrive. Um, taking care of an oak tree is about one of the safest things you can do. Um, ecosystems are so complex and there's so many ways that we can have unintended consequences and, um, and planting an oak is, is pretty much a pretty safe thing to do. So um, yeah, if, if, you know, as far as biodiversity, um, taking care of our oak trees is just a, a really um, powerful act in this time. So yeah, talking about our, our project in particular in Redwood Valley, um, I wanna highlight real briefly um, that we are planting back in um, the upper reaches of the West Fork of the Russian River in the Tomkide Creek area. And we're focusing on um, these species here for collection, um, black oak, interior live oak, blue oak, valley oak, and Oregon white oak. And we're gonna kind of jump into identification here to kind of help share some tools with you to help you um, build your your pattern recognition in your eyes that can um, learn how to, to identify different species of oaks. Um, so this is a resource from Kate Marion Childs, um, who's a local author and speaker. And um, she has on her website, I believe it's katemarionchild.com. You can purchase these oak identification charts and they're super handy little field guides. Um, but I'm going to just walk you through some of kind of the, the key pattern recognition tools that you can utilize to identify oaks. Um, one thing I'll say before we get too deeply in is that oaks hybridize. <laughs> They're very promiscuous. And so it can get a bit tricky to identify them um, because as they hybridize, the property or their leaf morphology changes quite quickly. Um, so the shape of the, the leaf is one tool for identifying oaks, but it's really the acorns that have all the clues for us. Um, so, you know, I can give you some kind of big picture um, tools and then you will learn more and more as I am that oaks just hybridize and they're very difficult to identify and that's okay. At this point in the webinar, Lindsay shared some great tips for identifying oaks and their acorns. But since that relied on images, we're going to skip ahead to hear some tips on acorn collection. You can access Lindsay's full webinar at bit.ly forward slash Mendo Acorns. That's with an uppercase M and an uppercase A. So bit.ly forward slash Mendo Acorns. So I'm going to move on to um, gathering and sorting. Um, the first thing I want to touch on real briefly is just timing of when we're gathering acorns. Um, so really starting around August, probably some of you have noticed um, that acorns are starting to drop. <laughs> and you'll often see the immature acorns or damaged acorns. Um, 
very small ones um, start to drop and it's kind of the tree's way of conserving their energy and letting go of the seeds that are not going to be viable. Um, and then I would say, you know, it depends on the year, but in the month of September, often we'll see kind of the first big drop of um, more damaged acorns and typically um, acorns damaged with weevils. And we're going to talk more about that in a minute. Um, and then we'll start to see the good drop coming in um, starting now and it'll keep going. Um, and ideally we would love to be gathering um, a couple rains is okay, light rain, but once it really starts raining, um, those acorns are gonna receive the signal from mother nature that it's time to start germinating and um, they can also start to mold. Um, so really the best time to gather is kind of after the weevily drop and before the big, big rains come. Um, because of course we wanna be planting when the big rains come so that um, our acorns and their tap roots can take advantage of that first um, big rain to start their life cycle and, and get their roots down to take advantage of the water. So the time is now. <laughs> um, and as you're gathering, you know, often I'll go just kind of um, try to find places that are clear of debris, leaves, things like that. Um, dirt roads are nice, good places to collect. Um, parks and lawns are often good places because it's easier to see them and pick them up. Um, and then you're going to want to go through and sort them. And there are, couple, there are a lot of different ways to do this, actually. One is just using visual cues. And I really like this method because um, it requires that I actually touch and look at every single acorn, which I think is pretty cool, you know, to have um, that kind of intimacy with these seeds. Um, so I'll go through visually and I'll look for um, evidence of acorn weevil damage, um, such as an exit hole, or you can, so acorn weevil damage is a big one, um, mold, or um, if the cap is still on, um, that will often mold underneath, and so um, that's one to toss out as well, and um, small or kind of immature looking ones, not fully formed also, um, can be left for the critters and um, you know one of the reasons of course that acorns are so um, or oaks are so amazing for biodiversity is that everybody eats acorns from the tiniest acorn weevil all the way up to the black bear and everybody in between it's like feast time on the land so you know leaving the the acorns that are not good for human eating or for sprouting to grow out um, will leave a feast for all the the other critters and it might just be worth saying in this one too that you know because acorns are such important food for everybody out there um, really only gather what you know you're committed to um, to planting back so that the rest can stay for everyone else. I just wanted to point out that um, native Californians are very sophisticated in their management of oaks and a big reason that fire um, has been used in oak woodlands is to manage the acorn weevil population. So traditionally oaks are burned under to reduce the habitat where acorn weevils overwinter. And I was on a prescribed fire up at Redwood National Park um, and it was very cool to actually see the this duff kind of under um, ground cover where the acorn weevils overwinter, if that is burned off and that habitat is reduced, there are fewer acorn weevils. And there's some pretty fascinating things about how fire kind of overlaps and coincides with their life cycle. It was pretty cool to get in there and see, um, you know, low intensity prescribed fire working to 
um, to burn the buggy acorns and to reduce the habitat. Okay, um, another tool that folks use for sorting out um, acorns is using what's called the float test where you gather up the acorns and then you put them in a bucket of water and the floating acorns are the ones that are not viable. Um, and this is a great tool for if you've got really large quantities. Um, the couple things that I think are maybe just something to consider with this is that, um, I mean, if you're eating them, this will be just adding more moisture to, to drying them out to, um, you know, to save them and store them. But if you're planting them back also, the moisture can kind of trigger the, the signal to the seed that the rains have come and it's time to start germinating. So, um, you know, if you use the float test and you get your seeds wet, then you're going to probably want to plant them out sooner um, because they might start that germination process more quickly. So moving on to the acorn bank, um, Hopland Research, Research and Extension Center has been very um, graciously working on this piece of the project where um, we put the call out to volunteers to help us gather acorns to plant back. And um, ATREC is hosting the storage um, at their site. And they, there's a link here um, that will take you to more information on their website about the acorn bank. And it has some great tips on how to gather and sort and identify acorns. And then here's a list of our different um, drop sites where if you're gathering acorns, you can bring them to, um, to drop off and then they'll make it down to the cold storage at Hopland until it's time to plant back. So we have one in Potter Valley, one in U downtown Ukiah, one in kind of um, the north end of Redwood Valley and then HREC itself. And all these details are on the HREC website. Um, we just ask folks to, um, you know, to just drop in the boxes and wear a mask and, and then we'll do pickups to make sure that they get stored. And then I do want to say that um, this year we are hoping to, uh, it's been amazing to see the, um, the outpouring of support. And I think that there's just something really powerful about gathering seeds. I you know it's one of my favorite times of year um, and people have been really enthusiastic and um, willing to participate in, um, in large quantities. So we have had lots of acorns and this year we're actually going to um, have a, sort of an acorn giveaway at the end of our, um, once we sort of figured out what we're gonna plant back, um, we're gonna create some information to kind of help empower folks with, you know, it's, it's very straightforward planting an acorn. Actually, it turns out you just kind of pick a good site for it and put it in the ground and then they do the rest of the work. Um, but we're gonna release or create some information just to support folks in that. And one of the big things that these little seedlings need is a little bit of protection as they get going um, because there's a lot of pressure on them from rodents and ungulates that want to eat them up as they sprout and grow. So um, yeah, we're gonna put some information out about how to plant and help your young seedling um, thrive and we'll be giving back the rest of the acorns that we don't plant to the community so that people can get out and do some planting of their own. Um, this year we actually won't be able to plant with volunteers because of COVID-19 but we have um, an amazing crew of folks coming together to get all these acorns out and planted that y'all are hopefully gonna help us collect. Thanks so much to Lindsay for organizing this incredible effort. Your drop-off locations for acorns are 
In Ukiah, the Mendocino County Resource Conservation District, at 410 Jones Street, Suite C3, Ukiah, California, 95482. Drop-off hours at this location are from Monday to Friday, 9am to 4pm. There's a box labelled Acorn Drop in the corridor at the suite entry. You can also drop them in Redwood Valley at the Fry Vineyards and Winery. That's 14,000 Tomkai Road, Redwood Valley. Drop-off hours at this location are from Monday to Saturday, 9am to 5pm. There will be a box next to the mailbox in the driveway, right next to the fence covered in holiday lights. You can conveniently loop around and exit after the drop. You can also drop in Hopland, right here at the Hopland Research and Extension Centre at 4070 University Road. Drop-off hours at this location are every day from 9am to 5pm. There is a box labelled Acorn Collection Drop Site just outside the main gate to the site. And your final drop-off location is in Potter Valley at the Oak Granary, which is at 12901 Eel River Road, Potter Valley. Drop-off hours at this location are every day from 9am to 5pm. There is a box labelled Acorn Collection Drop Site just inside the driveway. We do ask that you collect your acorns in a paper bag and don't overload the bag so it's ready to explode. Um, make sure you have enough bags for the amount of acorns you are collecting. Make sure also that you fill in the data sheet um, and put that into the paper bag with your acorns. Now you can find that data sheet by going to our website bit.ly forward slash Mendo Acorns. That's with an uppercase M and an uppercase A. So bit.ly forward slash Mendo Acorns. You'll find all the information you need about collecting the acorns, a link to the YouTube um, webinar with Lindsay Daly, the drop-off locations, how to collect them, the data collection sheets, they're all right there on our website. Now, when you do drop your acorns off, please ensure you wear a mask and practice physical distancing at the drop-off locations. Ensure that your acorns are bagged with the data sheet inside the bag and please do not enter any of these drop-off locations beyond the drop-off point. Acorns will be replanted in fire-affected areas. We are particularly interested in acorns from Redwood Valley in the Tomkai Creek area. And we have a particular interest in species including the black oak, Oregon white oak, interior live oak, canyon live oak, blue oak and valley oak. Well, thank you for joining us on the Ecology Hour this evening. And remember, this is the KZYX Fall Quiet Drive. You can help us reach our goal by making a donation to PO Box 1 Philo CA95466 or go online to kzyx.org where you can also view our thank you gifts. During business hours, you can call the office at 707 895 2324 and press 5. Become a member today and support local community radio. Please remember that if you have any comments about the programme, we'd love to hear from you. You can visit us at our Facebook page 
at the Hopland Research and Extension Centre or find us on Twitter and Instagram at Hopland Rec. Or you could always send me an email hbird, H-B-I-R-D, at U-C-A-N-R dot E-D-U. We'd love to hear from you and find out what you'd like to be hearing on the Ecology Hour into the future.